All right, Psalm 33 this evening is where we continue on, and you'll notice that Psalm 33 does not directly uh, tell us that it was authored by David. Uh, We tend to think that because of where it's put with uh, with other psalms of David, and David, of course, uh, is the majority writer, from a human perspective anyway, of the psalms that we have. There's a few other human instruments that God used, we'll see, to give us some of these psalms, but we can't be certain. Ultimately, we know the uh, primary author is the Holy Spirit of God himself, and uh, the Spirit of God, from time to time, picks up different pens and uses uh, different telephones, if you would, but those things are just the instruments through which uh, a voice is ultimately spoken. But uh, the psalmist here tells us in verse 1, as we've seen this statement before, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp, make melody to him, it says, with the instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. So the psalm opens with the writer again encouraging us as the righteous, that is those who live in right relationship with God. Uh, From a New Testament perspective, as we think of the righteous, we think of not only those of us in right relationship with God, but more those of us who are in a right standing before God. That is that through our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God has given to us a righteous position before him. And again, that is something we can only receive from God. The Bible speaks of the righteousness of God that comes through faith. That is that our righteousness, the scriptures tell us, are as filthy rags. The idea is on our best day, when we try and do what's good and right, Even in our best of human efforts, the standard of what God requires in righteousness or holiness is something that we could never achieve. And our own righteous efforts of being good or being religious or trying to be moral, that equates to looking like we're standing before a holy God in filthy rags. But that there is a righteousness of God that is God's righteousness that comes to us through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that he gives to us a righteous standing so that through our trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross and his resurrection, God gives us, he imparts to us as a gift, the righteousness of God. It's a righteousness from God that makes us acceptable to God. And we have both the blessing of that as believers. So how much more then is this psalm very applicable to us? We're not only righteous in the way that we're in right relationship with God as a follower of his, a child of his, but we have a righteous standing before God. And he says, therefore, in light of that, no matter what else is going on in your life or in the world, he says, therefore, O you righteous, he says, rejoice, celebrate, rejoice in the Lord. We can rejoice in the Lord for many of those benefits that we just discussed. And then he says there, verse one as well, for praise from the upright is beautiful. That is, it's a beautiful thing when we give praise unto the Lord. And notice, the condition of our heart is what makes that praise beautiful. Because you notice he says, praise from the upright is beautiful. The idea of upright is someone who's not crooked. Someone who's upright is someone who's standing in a straight manner. And and that's the idea there, is, is someone who is upright in heart When we have a right heart condition before the Lord, then our praise is a very beautiful thing. 
because people can praise the Lord and be living in a completely crooked manner in their heart, right? Jesus even spoke about how there are those who can honor God with their lips, but their hearts be far from him. In the Old Testament, the Bible speaks of and the prophets from time to time as God would, would sort of rebuke and complain and say, these people worship me in vain. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Worship me in vain. Uh, the idea there is God saying, look, they're going through the motions of worship. They're doing the mechanics of whatever worship would be comprised of. But God said it's empty and it's in vain. There are times where God even speaks through the different prophets saying it's actually offensive because there would be such a hypocrisy going on in the personal and private life. And yet people coming and going through the mechanics of worship in a way that was just utterly hypocritical. And that's why the Bible says what's really beautiful is praise from the upright. That when you're living upright and your heart is in a right condition and you're praising God, God says, boy, that is beautiful. Someone who is righteous in their living and living upright and praising me and appreciating who I am to them. And then he tells us how to praise the Lord in verse two. He says, praise the Lord, notice with the harp, make melody to him. So interesting, God not only likes music, but he likes music to have a proper melody, different melodies to music, different you know tunes and, and those kind of things. Uh, make melody to him with an instrument of 10 strings. So again, the Bible is very clear. We see it here and in other places that God likes us to praise him, to use music, to honor and to bring pleasure to him through worship and to actually utilize instruments. Now, there are even parts of the church that convey the idea that to use instruments is wrong or improper or unspiritual, that only with our voices. Well, uh, apparently they're cutting out portions of their Bible uh, because God talks about using crashing symbols and instruments with strings. God likes instruments. There are going to be instruments in heaven. The Bible speaks of harps in heaven. So I don't know how that's going to work when you get to heaven because there are going to be guitars in the eternal realm, the God's way. Uh, God likes instruments. And here, instruments are to be used as a way to offer honor to God, as a way to help people to you know, sing to the Lord and express their praise to them. It says, praise the Lord with, notice the harp, with, an instrument of strings. Uh, so using instruments to praise the Lord is something God likes. God also likes when we make melody unto him. So again, there's the idea that we're not just, you know, singing randomly, but, you know, using melodies. Again, that in, implies what? Beautiful sounding music. When something's played with a melody, it sounds very beautiful and pleasing. He says, verse three, notice, not just sing, but you notice the first three words there, verse three, sing to him. Sing to him. It's not just sing about him. It's not just sing because of him. It's literally sing to him. Well, I don't like to sing. Well, that's okay. You sing to him. He likes when you sing. Uh, he, he wants to be serenaded, the idea is. Uh, we're to, to love the Lord and like a, someone who's in love with someone else and they serenade them with a love song. Well, that's what our worship is. We are, notice, making verse two melody to him. So the music is unto him. It's not just music to impress those who are assembled. It's not just really great music. It's not a Christian concert. And sadly, some, you know, church gatherings can almost become like that. It's almost like, you know, it, it becomes a performance. The music is incredible. I mean, it is just professional, but it becomes more of music and melody and beautiful sounding music 
for the people so they can have a experience, you know, and, and enjoy really the music. And look, God says, no, it's, it's music played unto me and it's singing that's done unto me. And let me just say in connection to that, one of the things I deeply, deeply appreciate with those the Lord has blessed us here with, with that lead us in our musical worship under the Lord with Chris and Tommy and Brian and different guys who do that for us here. Uh, you know, what I greatly appreciate is they actually help us to do what the scripture says, which is to, to allow melody and music and, and ability to sing unto the Lord. Because you can have fantastic music, and I have been, perhaps you have as well, at gatherings where the music is fantastic and the singing is professional. And I sit there in my seat and go, I can't follow that. I can't sing like that. Could you bring it down an octave or two or 12 or like, I don't sing like that. You know, like I, I, I'm not a professional singer. I'm not, well, I don't know who's even good nowadays. Whoever, pick whoever, but I can't sing like that. It sounds great, but I didn't come for a concert. I came to worship. I want to sing to the Lord. So can we sing in a manner where we can all sing unto him? Again, that's the whole idea of the, the truly anointed worship leader may have incredible gifting, but they may even tone down what they could do to make sure that at least the general common Joe and Sally are able to sing along with them and they facilitate worship and singing unto the Lord. If they want to fill in things beautifully uh, on top of that, fine. But the primary goal is to get the general populace singing unto the Lord because that's what God wants from us, that we'd sing unto him. And notice, again, verse 3, sing unto him a new song. So God likes new songs. The idea there predominantly is fresh expressions. So, Again, that can be in the form of periodically the spirit of God giving those who are musically gifted to be able to write new songs. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing when good, healthy, uh, you know, doctrinally sound new songs are written as courses or hymns or praise songs to sing unto the Lord new songs. Uh, and we're thankful. And I think it's a good and a healthy thing we, as the spirit of God is moving. And anytime you've seen revivals happen through church history there's always been not only a turning again to the word of god and a renewal of people's interest in the word of god but many times you see through history there's also fresh music and songs that come in attachment to that and god likes fresh expressions so again some of that is new songs in the sense of a literal new song again sometimes again we're oh we're singing a new song i don't know this one that's okay <laughs> god wants us to learn a new song Sometimes a, the idea is that we need a fresh expression because sometimes, though I love singing songs that are familiar too, don't get me wrong, too many new songs I don't think is good in a worship or musical set because then people disconnect. But periodically, a new song is a good thing. Familiar songs are good because I can close my eyes. I don't need to look at the words and I can just truly engage from my heart. But if it's always just the same songs monotonously and there's not enough of a fresh rotation of not just literal new songs or maybe just a new song that hasn't been sung in a while, then we can almost get a little rote, right, and routine, and we can just kind of mouth the words and our hearts aren't really connected. And God wants us to be having fresh experiences with him, and then out of those fresh experiences, maybe even the old songs take on a whole new meaning, right? You've ever had that happen before, where because of maybe what you're going through, or maybe you've failed recently and experienced the forgiveness of the Lord. 
or maybe just the power of God has come through in this incredible way, or maybe you're really hurting and going through a, a valley and a difficult time, and, and a song begins to be sung, and in a whole new way, right? That song generates a fresh expression, and it becomes like a whole brand new song to you because there's a fresh expression going from your heart as you're singing that song unto him. So again, great insight here. The Holy Spirit not only telling us to praise the Lord, but telling us how to go about that. Sing unto him a new song. God loves fresh expressions of worship. And even verse three, look, the Lord says, play skillfully with a shout of joy. The shout of joy speaks of just passion, enthusiasm. That is your heart's in it, right? You're motivated. You know, when when people cheer, I mean, when, you, when you're cheering for a sports team, you know, you, you're, you're shouting, you're enthusiastic, you're passionate. Well, look, we, it, to a degree, we're, we're cheering for the Lord. We're, we should be excited about the Lord. There should be passion, not mumbling, but a real passion and enthusiasm in how we sing and play and honor the Lord in our worship. And he even tells us in verse three there that God enjoys when not only melody is made unto him, verse two, but in verse three, when we sing to him and play skillfully unto him. That is not just playing an instrument, but actually wanting to play it well, right? Because if you play and you don't play skillfully, you can be more of a hindrance and a distraction than you actually are a blessing and an asset to the way that the music sounds. And, and there's something about the power of music, is there not? God knows that. And, and I, that's why he's given us music and singing as a vehicle to express our hearts to him because there's something powerful, right, about songs and about music. They get, don't tunes get stuck in your head, right? That's why the devil knows this as well. You do realize that. Why do you think the devil works so hard in the music industry? Because he understands the power of music. And so that's why such filth gets put through channels of music to try and influence our young people and corrupt people's minds because tunes get stuck in people's heads. Uh, and God knows that, and we want to redeem it for God's purpose. That was the original design. Well, verse 4, he tells us why we should worship the Lord. He says, for the word of the Lord, in case you needed a reason, is right. And all his work is done in truth. Notice the word of the Lord and the work of the Lord. Notice how those two things always go hand in hand, we see. God's word is always consistent with God's work, and God's work is always also going to be consistent with his word. The two go hand in hand. And I love how verse 4 just simply declares the word of the Lord is right. It will never be wrong and that's important because it is true, absolute truth. And there are times in our lives where we may think a certain way and we read the word of God and it challenges what we think or it challenges what we feel. And this is when we need to know what verse four says. The word of the Lord is right. Not the way you feel about the matter. The word of the Lord is is what's right, which means sometimes God's saying to me, you're wrong. Your attitude's wrong. Your perspective is wrong. The way that you're behaving is wrong. Your approach to it, well, what everybody else, well, if you know what they did to me, or, well, I, the word of the Lord is right. It doesn't matter what the worldly patterns are. It doesn't matter even what other Christians are doing or not doing. 
It doesn't matter how you think about it or, you know, again, you know, I'm struggling. I've had people say to me before when I've addressed situations where there's hurts and offenses and, you know, trying to tell people how to biblically do conflict resolution. And look, you need to, the Bible says you're to go to that person and you're to tell them what happened and give them a chance to be aware of the hurt and the offense and, and give them a chance to bring resolution. And, and I've had people literally stare me in the face and say, well, you don't understand. That may be what the Bible says, but that's not what hurt people do. Huh? I understand you're hurt, but since when does being hurt give a pass on obeying the word of God? That's just going to perpetuate more hurt, Right? More problems. God doesn't tell us there's going to be an absence of problems or conflict or challenges. God just says, I'm going to tell you how to resolve those things through forgiveness and proper channels of communication and, you know, doing what's right no matter how you feel about it or how easier. Because you know as well as I do, usually doing the right thing, I've said this from the pulpit many times, but I'll say it again, usually doing the right thing isn't complicated. It's just what? Hard, right? <laughs> But God says to us, look, here's the important thing. Always fall back on this. And any of your thinking and perspectives, maybe whatever you're going through right now, maybe God's reminder is the word of the Lord. That's what's right. Go by the word of the Lord. Again, whether it's in who you marry or, or what you do or don't do, whatever. just the word of the Lord is right. You stick with that and you'll stay on the right track in your life. Verse five, he tells us for he, that is God loves righteousness and justice. God loves when we do what's right and we do what's just and appropriate. The earth, the Bible says, is full of the goodness of the Lord. That is, as we look around, we see indications, even in a fallen world, of just the goodness of God as we look around on the earth. Verse six, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Now we're speaking of God's creative power by speaking forth with his power things into existence. By the word of the Lord, Genesis one and two tell us the heavens were made, all the host of them, that is the stellar heavens, you know, the, the, the stars and the planets and, and all of those things, solar systems, these powerful, gigantic things that exist, the eternal heavens. The Bible speaks of uh, three different heavens, the atmospheric heavens, the stellar heavens, and the eternal heavens. And all these, the host of them, by the breath of his mouth, he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap, and he lays up the deep in the storehouses. Let all the earth, he says, fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in all of him for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Now, as you re reflect upon Genesis chapter one and two and as God in seven days there, of course, six days orchestrated his creation, the seventh day he rested, but God would just speak, right? Let there be light and there was light. And God would, would speak and literally through his spoken word, because he's God, not because people can speak things into existence. And well, God spoke things into existence. Right. He's God. You know, people, well, you can speak. There's power in words. There is if you're God. <laughs> but that's the power of God. God literally spoke and mountain ranges and, I mean, literally spoke things into existence by his great power. That's what these verses are reminding us of. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and there it was. It, it stood fast. And uh, again, just even this uh, 
past week while she was on break, my youngest daughter, who's out in California, uh, w- was up in the area of, of the Yosemite area there and was sending us back pictures uh, of some of the, the scenery there. I mean, these incredible, you know, rock face mountain ranges and waterfalls. I mean, just incredible, astonishing pictures of some of the beauty and marvelous creation there. And as she was sending out these pictures, I sent back, I said, I said to her, and, and do you realize all God had to do was just speak, and that just happened? I said, that's pretty powerful. God just spoke, and that happened. He just declared it, and it came about like that. And then I said to her later on, we were talking, I said, and here's the crazier part. That's the cursed version. That's the fallen version, right? I mean, you've seen some really awesome places and or watch these documentaries of some incredible things that exist in creation, right? Realize God just spoke and that happened. That's what kind of power our God has. And realize that's the broken version because sin marred it all. <laughs> Can you imagine what the original version was like? The power of God, the wisdom of God, the, the beauty and the goodness of what he can create. That's why verse eight here, the psalmist says, in light of this, let all the earth fear the Lord. We should reverence that kind of almighty God. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Really, that creation does speak of the invisible attributes of God. The Bible tells us is one of the testaments of God's brilliance and his intelligence and his wisdom and his power, as we just were speaking about. You know, I encourage you sometime, just next time you're out somewhere, you know, in nature or you know, out in the woods or just go, you know, go over the beach. And, and instead of just staring at the ocean and admiring the waves in regards to getting psyched about surfing or boogie boarding or anything else, I encourage you to stand there and look at that and go, wow, God. What kind of a God does it take to create that, to just, and you're just seeing a small portion of some stuff, to speak that into existence and just literally allow yourself to just stand there and just meditate, as it says, verse eight, to just stand in all of him and just realize how simple your problems are, your situations are when you talk about that kind of power. Again, God can speak and something can be done. All God's got to do is declare it. If God declares something, it's done. If God says it, it's guaranteed. He can command something that he wants, and it just stands fast. It's assured. Nothing else need be done. Verse 10 says, and the Lord brings, look at this, the counsel of the nations to nothing. Boy, these are encouraging things to hear in our times, are they not? The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. So nations can plot this and plan that, and, and, and ultimately God can just foil all of those plans national and international things that can be plotted and planned out. He can bring the counsel of these people and great powers to absolute nothing. He makes notice the plans of the peoples of no effect. And the idea there is that no matter what nations, national leaders do this, that, even evil, you know, dictators and people who have horrible intentions, no matter what they do, their ultimate plots and plans will not interrupt the ultimate plan of God. So they can do things and God may from time to time permit and allow certain human beings and human plans to come about, but God is so incredible that ultimately he has such control over all things that somehow he will use even evil and turn it for some good purpose. 
And ultimately, he won't let their plans, the ideas, interfere with his ultimate plans or supersede or hinder what he ultimately intends to do. Because verse 11 assures us, notice, the counsel of the Lord is what stands forever. God, you can do that, God says, but my plan is still going to come to pass. I'm just going to use what you did now, and I'll just, okay, through that, I'll just do this then. Through that, I'll just accomplish this, and I'll just bring it about in this way. The plans, notice, of his heart are what stand to all generations. Verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. Boy, Israel certainly needed to hear that. They understood that practically from time to time. Any nation would do well to take heed to that reality. Would to God that would be on a plaque right in Washington, D.C., all throughout the city and our you know, state governments. And so blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Those who recognize the authority of God, God says that nation will experience blessing. And I think to a great degree, one of the reasons our country, especially in its earlier days, and even to a degree where we're at now, has experienced some of the multitude of blessings we have in this country is because to a great degree, originally, we were a nation founded upon Judeo-Christian ethics that honored God. That's why we printed on our money, in God we trust. That's why all through our heritage and our history, there's the reference to trusting God, looking to God, you know, letting God dictate the way that we would govern our nation and what our ethics would be. And, and to that, we brought great blessing upon ourselves. God blessed that and he honored it. And to the degree that we move away from that, the exact opposite is going to transpire. Uh, and so here, just great wisdom, blessed, God says, is that nation whose God is the Lord. Verse 13 says, the Lord looks from heaven and he sees all the sons of men. So here is God's keeping an eye upon everybody. He's looking down, keeping track of each and every inhabitant on the earth. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. Nothing escapes God's eye. He fashions their hearts individually. Wow, how personal is that? God Almighty, this God of creation, steering stars and asteroids and taking care of everything, the hydraulic you know, cycles of the earth and I mean, all this incredible stuff. And yet look at God condescends and he's so powerful, but condescends and is yet so personal. He fashions the hearts of each inhabitant on the earth individually. God makes each person to have the temperament they have, the personality they have. Psalm 139 is gonna say, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Again, there's, there's no human being that has flaws and mistakes. Are we all flawed in a sense because of sin? Yes. But other than being flawed by sin, from God's perspective as an all-wise God, you are not flawed. You are exactly by perfect design, hardwired, created, put together, fashioned your heart to be who God wanted you to be and needs you to be so that ultimately you would discover God, have relationship with God, because that's the primary purpose of your existence. 
and to be able to just let God work through your life and glorify himself through you because of who you are and who you can reach and the skill sets that you have and the personalities and temperament. Again, he fashions the hearts of people with individuality, considering all their works. Verse 16 says, no king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. So notice the military might of a nation is is not necessarily dependent upon their arsenal or what they have at their disposal. What was more important was, was that nation trusting God? Because here he says, no king is going to be saved by the multitude of an army. Oh, well, we have the biggest military. God says, that doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it really isn't going to matter. God proved that all throughout Israel's history. No king, he said, is saved ultimately by the multitude of a great army or having great strength. He says, verse 17, a horse, and again, a horse was a very important military uh, instrument in that day. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Now, to them, a horse was a, a, a very important piece of military safety because the horse kept you much safer as you rushed into battle than being a ground soldier on the foot. But a horse was also utilized for safety because if you're having problems or you're losing, guess what? You can get on a horse and you can run for your life a lot faster than them two little legs are going to make you run if you're losing the battle. So they looked at, hey, if you got a horse, you're much more safe going into the battle and you're much more safe getting out of the battle if you need to retreat and run away. And God says, a horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. See, our ultimate safety is the Lord. Trusting in him and knowing that he is our protector and he is the one preserving and guiding us in what we're doing. That, that, that's what makes all the difference. Verse 18 says, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, who reverence him, those who have reverence and respect for God. His eye is upon us. The idea is his eye is upon us to keep us, to watch over us. On those who hope in his mercy, God, we need your mercy. If we're going to stay alive or make it through this, we're trusting your mercy, God. Notice verse 19, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. So God is able by his power to deliver and to keep alive in the most difficult and dangerous circumstances. He refers to a time of famine where there's lack of food, people are starving. The idea is typically in famines, people were dying. There was a higher death rate. People were in jeopardy. Their lives were at risk. They were at risk to die. And it says here that God is able to deliver a soul from death, and to keep people alive in the midst of those difficult times. Again, what a wonderful thing to deliver our soul. The soul speaks of the part of us which is not going to last, or, or you know, that, that's, that's not going to just die physically. The soul speaks of the inward life. The soul and the spirit is what lasts eternally. And so it's interesting that he says deliver the soul from death because ultimately that's what's way more important. Physical death may come to everybody. But where our soul and spirit departs from, hopefully not the place of eternal death, but to the place of eternal life, is dependent upon our relationship from the Lord. And only God is able to bring that about in our life. That's why Jesus said, don't fear him who can kill the body. He says, you should be afraid of the person who can destroy the soul. That's who we should genuinely fear, which is to fear God. Our greater fear should be 
of the Lord, that we have reverence towards him and to trust that he is able to keep us alive. Well, what a great encouragement. Verse 19 is to keep someone alive, to keep them alive. God's able to do that. People are overwhelmed by fear. God can keep people alive if he wants to keep them alive. In the most dangerous of situations, God can preserve and God can protect. That's why verse 20, he turns back and says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Again, we're waiting expectantly upon the Lord. He alone is our helper. We can't do anything to help ourselves and we can't do anything to protect ourselves, but he is our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him. Again, the psalmist says, because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Psalm 34, we get a little bit of background. We're told in the superscript or prescript here that it's a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. And what that's referring to is 1 Samuel chapter 21 which is a time when David was being threatened by Saul. Remember, Saul was pursuing David because he was jealous of him, trying to put him to death. David's running from cave to cave and wilderness spot to wilderness spot, living like a a refugee, like a Robin Hood experience, just trying to stay alive because Saul's men are hunting him down. And David, during that process, it seems at one point in time, started to lose heart a little bit. And he started to get a little discouraged. Even the best of men are men at best. And David had feet of clay as well. And though he had great times of trust and confidence in the Lord, there are times David got discouraged, got a little depressed when he would say, look, there's about a step between me and death. And surely that's, my life's going to end in death anyway. And, and he would start to feel hopeless. And he would start to buy into the feelings and the thoughts that would come over him from time to time, just like they do you and I. And so David, on one of those occasions we're told, went over to uh, Abimelech, went to Achish, the the, the king that was there, in an area of Gath, which was the area where Goliath was from. Remember Goliath, who David slew? So the people in Gath, because David had slain their giant, didn't really like David too much. And of all places, David and his crazy thinking gave up hope, and he said, I'm just going to go over there to the Philistines. Who cares anyway? I'm just going to die anyway. And so he just wanders over there, and when he gets there, he realizes this was a really bad idea. What was I? What was I? And he realized I just made a really dumb choice. I gave in to depression and discouragement, and now I'm making bad decisions, and I'm in this dark hole. And so David realized he was in a bad place, and he's kind of reeling over having just made some really dumb decisions. And so instead of just crying out to the Lord and, and, and David decides, I got to get myself out of the situation. What do I do? So he decides, I know what I'll do. I'll act like I'm crazy. And it says David started acting like a madman. He started letting spittle and saliva run down his beautiful And he just was acting like he was losing his mind. Ultimately, the point to where it actually worked. And they said, this guy is crazy. And the king said, get this guy out of here. He is a madman. Don't I have enough crazy people in my kingdom? I don't care what he did. Just get rid of him. And he was able to ultimately escape. Now, when David, no doubt, got back to the camp, he realized, boy, that was really dumb. And if it was not for the goodness of God protecting me and intervening for me, I would have lost my life. 
And it seems out of gratitude, David, when he gets back on the other side of this, realizes, you know, despite my dumb decisions and my acting like I was insane with saliva and spit running down my beard and and making a fool of myself, ultimately it was God who took care of me in the midst of my bad decisions. And boy, don't we all know that sometimes when we've put ourselves in a really dumb place and yet God is still good to us and he digs us out of our hole, right? And he gets us back to the place where we need to be. And we realize, Lord, thank you so much for protecting me, even in the midst of my foolishness. So David says in light of this, verse one, I will bless the Lord at all times. Notice, not just when I feel like it. And that's kind of our attitude. I'll bless the Lord. I don't feel like worshiping the Lord. No, he says, I'll bless the Lord at all times. And again, notice our word there. I always try and bring it back up. I will. Conscious decision. Nothing to do with feelings. Nothing to do with circumstances. I will, a conscious choice, bless the Lord at all times. When things are going great, when things are going really bad, when I feel like doing it, when I can't find an ounce of motivation to do it, I will bless the Lord at all times because he's worthy of that. And honestly, we get blessed reciprocally once we start to praise and worship the Lord. He says, verse one, his praise shall continually, that is all times, continually be in my mouth and my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. That's who we should be boasting about, boasting in the Lord, bragging upon the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. And then David invites others. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Join me, he says. Magnify, come and magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Maybe he was saying that to the other men who were there in the cave with him. Hey, let's, let's come on, gentlemen, let's magnify the Lord together. Come on, let's, let's exalt his name together. Not only great to worship the Lord, but even better when you can encourage and invite others to do the same with you. Verse four, he then tells us, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears now i think maybe verse four david is reflecting on some of what may have happened before he was kicked out of the town after acting like he was insane and they didn't want anything to do with him that david maybe was praying and crying out to god god i don't know what to do but if you just get me out of this ever said one of those before lord i know right now i'm acting like a crazy man and there's spit all over my beard and they think i'm but lord if you just get me out of this (laughs) just please lord please i'm i'm terrified they're gonna kill me just whatever it takes get me out of this and david's thinking it's the spit on his beard and he has no idea it's the power of god (laughs) you know it's probably working on his behalf because they could have easily said that guy's insane kill him right i mean what king couldn't have done that instead the king said that guy that guy's crazy kick him out of town The king easily could have said, just cut off his head. That would have been much easier of a solution, and he already had killed their giant. So David here, I think, realizes it was God's hand and intervention that he sought the Lord. He says, I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Notice David had fears. David experienced being afraid of things. We all have fears in our life. You know, there may be certain things in your life that you are fearful about there may be things that you're afraid of right now the bible tells us that god hasn't given to us a spirit of fear but of power of love and a sound mind and what do we do when we're dealing with fears that are beginning to dominate and control our life well you cry out to the lord 
You seek the Lord. You bring those fears before the Lord. David says, I sought the Lord. He heard me. And I love what he says. Verse four, he delivered me from all my fears. The Lord can deliver you from those things that you're fearing over in your life. Verse five, they looked to him, he says, and were radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. God didn't let David ultimately be ashamed. He he set them free from what was happening. He says, verse six, reflectively, this poor man, and he's not talking about material wealth. He's not talking about his bank accounts. He's talking about the condition of his soul. This poor man, the idea is I am in poverty on the inside. I am, I'm in a poor condition. You know, it's a good thing when we learn the poverty of our own condition. We see ourselves as a poor man, a poor woman. The idea is, Lord, I'm just a beggar. I got nothing to bring to the table, nothing on the account on the inside. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Again, David's thinking about how the angelic you know, beings, the, the, the ministers of God, his angelic spirits can come and bring protection. And we see this throughout the word of God. Hebrews 1 tells us that the angels are ministering spirits sent to the heirs of salvation, to the children of God. So again, the Lord can send his angels to come and to bring protection. And David, no doubt, maybe sensed some of that happened as the Lord delivered him out of his own troubles. He says, verse 8, listen, I've experienced firsthand, I have tasted the goodness of God, the power of God, the help of God in my life. But now he puts forth the invitation to all others. He says, oh, taste and see for yourself, he says. Taste and see, he says, that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. So David says, look, don't take my word for it. Taste and see for yourself, right? When, when you enjoy something really good, what's a very common thing we do when we're enjoying something? Hey, you want to taste it? This is incredible. My wife does that all the time. And we have totally different food tastes. She says, Come on, please just taste it. I don't want to taste. No, please. You have to taste this. Taste it. You'll like it. When you- and every once in a while, she's right. Every once in a while, she's not here this evening. Something came up, but uh, every once in a while. But again, the idea here is spiritually, we should be doing the same thing. We should be saying to people, hey, want taste and see for yourself. Come and taste and see how good the Lord is, how satisfying he is, more satisfying than any dessert, more fulfilling than any incredible food, right? Come taste and see. Taste and see for yourself. The Lord is good. He's not going to make your life worse. He's good. Come and taste and see what I've seen, that the Lord is good. And, you know, it's a thing we should be doing, inviting people to understand that. Verse 9, he says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him, to those who reverence God. He says there's no lack to the lives of those who live reverently of God. He says, verse 10, the young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Notice, young lions, what are young lions known for? Being ferocious, right? They are ferocious, strong, aggressive beasts. If they want something, they take it, right? And David's using this as a contrast. He says, even people like young lions, ferocious, aggressive, strong, who can take whatever they want. 
and nobody's going to stop him. He says, even young lions sometimes, they lack and they suffer. But he says, those who seek the Lord for what they need don't lack any good thing. Again, the picture there is we don't have to be like young young lions. We don't have to be people who are aggressive, overly assertive demanding, oh, I'm going to take this, I'm going to get what I want, I'm going to push, my, and, that, and that's what the world tells you. You've got to push yourself forward, man. You've got to take stuff, take control, and be aggressive, and be assertive, and work angle. No, you don't. You need to learn how to pray. You need to learn how to trust the Lord. You need to realize that you don't need to be like lion. You need to speak to the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a lion. I don't have to be a lion. <laughs> He's a lion, so I can let him be a lion. I tell the lion, can you go hunt for me? I need this. Can you get that for me? I need that. Can you get justice for me? I need help. And he says, those who seek the Lord do not lack any good thing or any good. Now, again, you say, wait a minute, I lack, this is lacking in my life. Maybe, because from God's perspective, though you think that would be good, maybe he doesn't think that would be good. Maybe it's not what's good right now for you. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. As I say, don't lack anything. They lack no good thing. So anything I have in my life, it's because God says, okay, that, that's good. The things that I may lack, even though I'm seeking the Lord, and maybe even seeking the Lord for them, maybe that God's saying, I know you're seeking me for that, but it may not be good for you to have that or to have that right now. And, and he's a good father, and so we can trust him with that. But what a wonderful thing to have that blessed assurance that he knows what we need and can supply what we need. He says, therefore, verse 11, come, you children, listen to me. So David, again, speaking to those younger than him. And again, if we're parents, we can take this and apply it. Or if you're ministering to children, you can apply these things. Come, you children, listen to me. I want to impart the things of God that I've learned to you as younger and less mature individuals. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I, I like that. Here's David. Wants to teach children, wants to teach those younger than him. And what does he want to teach them? How to be successful in careers, how to make lots of money. He says, no, let me teach you how to fear God. Let me teach you how to live in right relationship with God. You know, that is the most valuable thing that any parent can teach their child to teach them how to have a relationship with God. All the other stuff they can learn. God can teach them all the other stuff, even if I don't teach them all the other stuff. But to be able to teach your children, to be able to teach those younger than you, or if you have the chance to impart into the lives of children or younger people, teach them how to live in right relationship with God. That is the greatest thing you could ever teach them. David says here, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? So David's saying, do you want to have a good life? Again, he's talking to the children again. Do do you want to have a good life? He says, let me give you a couple ideas. Here's how you can have a good life. There's a couple ways you can do it. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. What's he saying? Don't lie. Don't let yourself become a deceptive person. Always be forthright. Always be honest. You do what's wrong, admit it. Don't be deceptive about it. You know, I said all the time when my kids were growing up, and Zach can tell you, and when guys started wanting to pursue my daughters, I would always say this phrase, and look, I don't expect perfection, but I demand honesty. 
I don't expect you to be perfect because I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Nobody can achieve perfection. However, everybody can achieve honesty. Honesty is within everybody's grasp, right? Nobody's going to bat a perfect batting at, but I know you're not perfect. I don't expect you to be perfect. However, I require and demand that you always be honest. In other words, when you make a mistake, when you foul, throw the penalty flag on yourself. Don't wait till I got to find out afterwards. You admit it, acknowledge it, be honest. Don't be deceitful. Just acknowledge it, and and that's the best way to to deal with things. It's a character issue. We don't want to become a deceitful person that becomes good at lying and misdirecting and hiding things from people. So he says, look, you want to live a good life? Keep your tongue from evil. Don't say things that are going to be evil and hurtful. Watch what you speak about. That's a tough thing, right, to control our words. Keep your tongue from saying things that are hurtful and evil. Keep yourself from becoming dishonest. He says, verse 14, depart from evil and do good. Boy, that's an important way to have a good life. Whatever's evil, get away from it. Stay away from evil and move towards what's good and wholesome and right. So the idea is like you can only face one direction, right? There's something in front of me and then there's something behind me. So he says, keep good in front of you, walk towards what's good and walk away from and depart from what's evil. That'll help you live a good life. Simple but straightforward advice. And then in verse 14, he says, another way to live a good life, seek peace and pursue it. Again, will there be conflicts? Will there be hurts, offenses, problems, issues? Yes. But God says, but be a peacemaker. Be someone who's not just willing to make peace. He says, be someone who can initiate someone, notice, who seeks peace. Seek peace, pursue peace. When there's an issue, try and pursue peaceable relationship. Try and bring reconciliation. Seek to resolve matters. Be the person who initiates seeking peace and pursuing reconciliation amongst people. That's the kind of person God says, you'll have a good life if you live like that. You have a good marriage, you have a good family, you have good relationships and enjoy a good life. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. That is God's attentive to those who live righteously. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, he says, and the Lord hears and he delivers them out of all their troubles. Notice, will the righteous have trouble? Apparently so, (laughs) Apparently so. Don't buy into this idea that if you live righteous, you're never going to have trouble. Well, if you just live righteous, you have enough faith, you confess it, you can grab it and blab it, right? That's what they're trying to use. You'll never have any problems. You should not be sick. You should be prosperous and healthy and wealthy. The Bible doesn't teach that. This is a fallen world. You can do everything right and live righteous, and you're still from time to time going to have troubles, on this earth it's a part of life's existence but the difference is we have someone who can come to our rescue we have someone who can help us and our troubles become avenues where god shows his power and his love he says verse 17 the righteous cry out the lord hears and delivers us out of our troubles that is he comes to our rescue when we're in times of trouble verse 18 tells us the lord is near to those who notice have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. So 
The idea of a contrite spirit, you might say, which matches with the first part of verse 18, a contrite spirit is like a broken spirit. The idea is someone who's been humbled. That would speak of when you maybe make a mistake and, and you're humbled and your spirit is broken. And when we have a broken, humble spirit before the Lord, he intervenes. When we have a proud, resistant attitude towards the Lord, he's going to stand afar off. But if we have a broken, humble spirit, David recognized that in Psalm 51. David said, the sacrifices of God, he says, are a broken and contrite heart. The idea is over our sinfulness. That's what God wants. You sin, you blow it. He doesn't want, you know, bring this sacrifice, bring that sacrifice. God says, that, that's not what I'm looking for your heart to be broken about it, that you would genuinely be humbled and want change and, and, and want to do better next time. And verse 18 reminds us as well that the Lord draws near to those who have a broken heart. You know, God is magnetically drawn. He draws close to those whose hearts are broken and hurting, whether they're broken and hurting over their own sin and mistake or whether they're broken and hurting because maybe there's been a loss, a death of a loved one, or just some painful disappointment, or someone has hurt you and you have a broken heart. Look, the Lord is near. You know, when you talk to people who go through times of being brokenhearted, those grieving at death, those in, and one of the things that you continually, they sense the presence of the Lord, that his presence is so real. And, and so, you know, genuine in those times, it's because when God sees someone in pain, I don't know how to say it other than this way. It's like he's magnetically drawn to people who are in pain. Look, that is one of the reasons why, and let me offer this to you as a word of wisdom and counsel. When somebody's heart is broken, do you know what you should do? Go be with them. Go be near them. Here's the way I look at it. That's where God's at right? God's with people who are hurting. When somebody's brokenhearted, God says, I'm going to go be with them. You don't have to have the right words to say. A lot of times, maybe you shouldn't even say anything, but your presence matters huge. Seeing your face at a funeral gathering is huge. It means things to people. Hey, my heart's broken. I'm grieving over my loved one. And here comes some brother, here comes some sister. They took a half hour out of their day. They took an hour out of their day and they just came to acknowledge my heart is broken and just show they care. It's huge. So again, God is close to those with a broken heart. We should be close as God uses us to those who have a broken heart and be encouraged. When you know someone has a broken heart and you can't be close to them, that's hard, isn't it? You know, there have been times all three of my daughters have been on the other side of the country in California and occasions where they're, you know, this, that happens and, and they're crying on the phone and it kills me. I can't tell you the number of times I was, you know, probably down to the last digit of my credit card ready to purchase a flight to fly out to California to take my daughter to lunch the next day. Because she was crying, and I was, you know, there have been numerous times with all three of my daughters since they've all gone to the same Bible couch out on the West Coast where, again, because what do we want to do? We want to be close to them because we love them, where I had to resolve, okay, Lord, I can spend $16,000 to fly to California tomorrow, <laughs> or I can know you're close to my daughter because her heart's broken right now. And so, Lord, I'm going I'm to trust you. 
You're close to her, and so I'm going to rest in that reality. The psalmist concludes, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Again, there it is. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. That prophecy was fulfilled in Christ. They didn't break one of his bones. Evil shall slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Romans chapter 8 tells us that there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You trust in the Lord. Life may be hard, but there's no condemnation because you're ultimately in right relationship with him foremost. Let's stand together. Let's pray.